Welcome to the Evidence to Impact podcast, the podcast that brings together academic researchers, government partners, and others outside of academia to talk about research insights and real-world policy solutions in Pennsylvania and beyond. I'm Michael Donovan, the Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator. In this episode, we'll be discussing criminal justice and sentencing guidelines. Today, my hosts are Jeff Ulmer, Professor of Sociology and Criminology in the College of Liberal Arts, and Mark Bergstrom, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Commission on Sentencing. Perhaps we can start with a little bit of a background, Mark? Sure. Um, I started working in probation and parole in the early 80s and came here to Penn State in 1992 as part of the Commission on Sentencing. And then in 1998, I took over as Executive Director of the Commission, so I've been here ever since. Great. Jeff? Um, I got my PhD here at Penn State in 1993, um, and I was a postdoctoral researcher at the Pennsylvania Commission on Sentencing for a year, um, from 93 to 94. And then I went to Purdue University, it was my first academic job. And then I came back here to Penn State in 2000, and I've been here ever since. Um, and my background with the subject is I, I've literally studied it my whole career from graduate school on. Um, my main research focus, not only, but main research focus has been courts and sentencing, primarily um, studying Pennsylvania and the federal system, federal courts and sentencing guidelines. Excellent. So we really have a, a wealth of knowledge and experience here. So who wants to start here with an explanation of just really what sentencing guidelines are and how they impact our society and why they really matter? Sure. Well, I'll start, I guess. Um, <laughs> so just as a little background on the commission, we're a legislative agency, an agency of the General Assembly in Pennsylvania and we have an affiliation with Penn State, and that affiliation goes back to the early 80s. Um, but we have a formal uh, MOU with, with the uh, Criminology Department and the College of the Liberal Arts. And, um, and so that, that gives us this uh, wealth of access to um, people like Jeff and others in the, in the department to help us really um, uh, work with the data that we can collect and use it to inform sentencing policy. So getting to guidelines themselves, um, back in the, in the 70s in Pennsylvania, there was a discussion about how do you promote more uniform sentencing. And there weren't a lot of models out there, but the two models that were discussed was enacting a bunch of mandatory minimum sentences or creating a commission that developed guidelines. And guidelines would be a bit more advisory or a little bit um, easier for judges to, to consider. And there are two factors that are generally in play in guidelines. The, the first and probably most important factor is what has the person been convicted of? Because that really creates the boundaries around what kind of punishment or what kind of sentence can be imposed. But another factor that's, that's very important is the person's background. And, and we generally think of that in terms of criminal history. Has the person been convicted of previous offenses? How many? How serious? And so forth. Now, there's going to be other factors to take into account, but the idea around sentencing guidelines was to promote greater proportionality in sentencing and greater uniformity. And we, we generally refer to it as a common starting point. We're giving all judges in the Commonwealth a common starting point based on a number of objective factors, and that's where they start sentencing. But then they have to individualize the sentence. They have to look at the person before them 
and decide if that starting point is appropriate or if there's factors that would move the court in one direction or the other in terms of the sentence imposed. Um, so that that's, um, in a nutshell, I guess, what guidelines are. What you'll find across the country is there's a real continuum of guidelines um, down at sort of the voluntary end where they're there, but courts really don't have to consider them, and at the very presumptive end where, where they're like mandatories, where judges have a tough time not abiding by the guidelines. We're somewhere in the middle. We're advisory guidelines, but we do have appellate review, and there's other kind of factors that promote compliance with the guidelines, but courts certainly have the ability to depart from the guidelines for um, uh, appropriate reasons. Great. Jeff, anything to add on that from an academic perspective? Um, yes. Well, I think, um, and I, I've always felt that, um, apart from the fact that I have worked with the Pennsylvania Commission on Sentencing and the U.S. Sentencing Commission um, as a researcher, but even if I hadn't, I, I have always thought that sentencing guidelines were the best way, the best approach have the best promise to structure sentencing and achieve what we want with sentencing. Um, sentencing and criminal justice decision-making in general um, always entails a balance between uh, individualization and uniformity, like Mark said, um, discretion to tailor uh, decisions, sentences to the needs of the situation, the defendant, the victim, the case, um, versus, um, you know, the, the kind of possibility for bias and disparity and arbitrariness and, you know, courts doing whatever they want. Um, and guidelines are, I think, the best tool that we've come up with to strike that balance because they make really good sense in terms of how people and organizations make decisions, um, they give an anchoring point, like Mark said, a, a, a starting point, a benchmark, that can then be adjusted up and down. And, and guidelines also give a range of sentences. Not They don't just tell the court, hey, this is the sentence. They give a range, and with other considerations to factor in, like aggravating circumstances, mitigating circumstances, and so forth. And so um, it gives kind of structured decision-making tools, but it, it doesn't take away the discretion. And so, you know, you can, we talk about unwarranted disparity, meaning unlike um, crimes and defendants getting, um, I mean, you know, similar similarly situated defendants and crimes getting wildly different sentences. But there's also unwanted parity. There's unwanted same, sameness where you have people that are, you know, really different in their culpability and criminality and so forth, getting the same sentence when, you know, it might not be appropriate for one of them. And guidelines are the best tool to do that, uh, much more so than mandatory minimums or other things that we've come up with. Um, so that, that's my, that's my, you know, that's a pit, that's a favorable view of guidelines, but I think it's, you know, I came to it for, for sociological reasons. Sure, sure. And I think that the, uh, the, what is actually perceived as a feature is the, the discretion built in to adapt to the circumstances mm -hmm. 
Uh, but I think that's also what many in the external audience see as a bug, right? Mm -hmm. A problem. Mm -hmm. uh, we're seeing this in current events right. here in mid-February of 2020 on the national level uh, as there's been a, you know, a wide discussion of, of uneven distribution of justice and sentencing guidelines and uh, coming from the White House. So it's interesting to think about how that um, is almost never going to make everyone satisfied. Sure. And I, I think, you know, as Jeff and I both said, I think there's there's always this tension between uniformity and, and individualization. And, and there's a number of factors that go to the individualization that I, I think if, if, uh, if the public more generally thought about those factors might see um, why the, the discretion is necessary and why you might have different outcomes. So um, I think about three factors that contribute to those kind of differences. So the one is the offense itself. You can think about an offense in statute that someone has been convicted of. There's you know, proof beyond the reasonable doubt of elements of a crime. But um, the, the nature, as Jeff said, the culpability of the offender, the role in the crime, um, the, the nature of the, um, the loss or the injury to the victim. There's a lot of different things that can play out that, that call for different sentences. And so judges have to consider that. And it's hard to you know, put metrics to that. I, I think you have to have an individual consideration. There's also the offender. So you know, an offender who's drug dependent um, might uh, warrant a different type of intervention than a, a defendant that's not. And so there's, there's individual characteristics. And I, I build into that individual characteristic that person that has a long prior record versus someone who's a first-time offender. So there's those kind of factors. And then I think the third thing that people don't think about often is the purpose of sentencing. You know, judges have a lot of different reasons for doing what they do. And we, we generally think in, in two sort of categories of reasons. One is, is retribution. We're just holding someone accountable for coming into the system. And we're going to sort of make things even by whatever kind of punishment or sentence we're imposing. And that's way different than the more utilitarian purposes. Like we're going to try to change behaviors and promote better outcomes. And sometimes those two approaches can be done sort of hand in glove, and sometimes they're very different approaches to how a judge is imposing a sentence. So I think you can, you can think of, um, of a judge thinking in terms of um, punishment, and, and there may be a different scaling of punishment based on those individual or background factors, or just role in the offense. Um, but if the defendant is, is drug dependent or has mental health issues, that might also impact the type of sentence the judge is imposing. That's great. You both mentioned the <clears throat> kind of patchwork quilt of the criminal justice system in America and how uh, there's a lot of heterogeneity or variation across different um, jurisdictions. Um, one common refrain from critics would be the challenge of bias um, and disparities and somehow uh, how particular sensing guidelines or features of the sentencing system, features of the sentencing system perpetuate those biases or disparities. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I could best talk about that um, in terms of like the issues with sentencing guidelines, their structure, and then the disparities that can arise. And um, I've spent my whole career uh, studying really two kinds of disparities. Um, one, based on 
individual social statuses like race, age, gender, and then uh, the other being um, organizational disparities, disparities in, um, say, you know, the, the plea bargaining practices or the, you know, the difference between conviction by trial and, sure. and plea bargaining, and then especially the differences between the patchwork, the differences between places, county courts in Pennsylvania, district courts in the federal system. And I can, and the Pennsylvania and the federal system, Pennsylvania's guidelines and the federal guidelines are a really instructive and valuable contrast because they took very different approaches. And in many ways, I think Pennsylvania avoided a lot of the problems and controversies that beset the federal sentencing guidelines. Um, Pennsylvania went the route of erring on the side of discretion for, for various reasons, um, governmental, political, um, judicial, and so forth. Um, and, you know, giving that benchmark, but wider discretion and, and relatively simple guidelines um, with, offense, you know, offense gravity score, that how severe, and a prior record score of, you know, weighted by the severity of criminal convictions, um, and then aggravated and mitigated ranges, and a relatively small number of, like, adjustments, like a deadly weapon enhancement and so forth. And they also did not key the guidelines to mandatory minimums. The federal system went completely the opposite direction. They tried to have restrict judicial discretion as much as possible. Um, they uh, had a, developed a very, very complicated set, set of sentencing guidelines with, with um, Barry Ruback, I think, mm -hmm. once calculated three million combinations that could occur with one simple crime of, of federal crime of robbery. Um, and that's because they, they factored in, they built in all these different adjustments to the, the offense severity um, based on what they called relevant conduct, um, offense-specific behavior, things like role in the offense and so forth, and also... Um, departures that the prosecutors could move for, like substantial assistance to law enforcement, you know, and, and an actual structured sentence reduction for that. All of which, it did, it did. Um, I don't know if it was intended or unintended, but it took a lot of the discretion that, that judges used to have and moved it to prosecutors because the guidelines gave them this menu of things to manipulate and bargain about in plea bargaining, mm -hmm. which also is to say it gave prosecutors lots of leverage to get people to plead guilty. Um, and the other, and the um, the uh, um, U.S. sentencing guidelines also keyed themselves to mandatory minimums, so that a mandatory minimum, if it's sought, always trumps the guidelines. Um, Pennsylvania didn't do that. Um, but yet you still see in the federal system, um, you see big differences between district courts, um, where you are in the country, you know, Southern California or Vermont or, or uh, Indiana, 
Um, and those differences come from how U.S. attorneys' offices manipulate those those uh, guideline factors in the guilty plea process. Um, Pennsylvania, you know, I mean, it faced opposite problems, but it it avoided a lot of the controversies and legal challenges that the federal guidelines had because they didn't do that. Yeah, and if I could pick up on the uh, patchwork um, idea, um, in Pennsylvania we have 67 counties, and most of criminal justice in Pennsylvania is done at the county level. We have courts of common pleas that are generally county-based, and we have counties really funding the criminal justice system. The state puts some money in, but modest as compared to the total cost. And so you find different criminal justice systems in each of the counties. And so they're one of the benefits, I think, of guidelines are to provide this, this framework that all counties in Pennsylvania are operating under. Um, I think absent that, you would have what we did have in the 70s and before, which was just individualized justice um, by county or by judge, which in some cases was, was very good, in some cases very bad. And so having a framework, I think, is important when you have this um, distributed system of criminal justice. That's fascinating. There's so many different permutations of how mm -hmm. how justice can be applied, and I can understand how that can be incredibly controversial. Sure. Um, around you know what what your background is, where you are, mm -hmm. where you tried, uh, and if I can speak, you know Pennsylvania, um, in my research and others, um, you know including in a in a study um, that my colleagues and I recently did with with uh, the death penalty and prosecutors seeking the death penalty and and uh, people actually getting the death penalty, it, you know, there are divergent practices across um, counties um, and with, with uh, non-capital sentencing, you know, with, with ordinary sentences that come under the sentencing guidelines, crimes that come under the sentencing guidelines. You do see um, between county differences, but they would, they would have to, have, they would be even worse They'd have to be even worse without guidelines, and and at least, you know, the the uh, there there's a center to it with guidelines. Mm -hmm. It's variation around mm -hmm. the anchor of the guidelines mm -hmm. instead. Um, and I think the death penalty decision making actually makes a nice contrast because um, there is not guidelines that that um, that govern prosecutors seeking the death penalty and and. Uh, judges and ju or juries giving the death penalty. And in our, re our report to the state and, a, and in some publications that are coming out, we found that really, other than the presence of the statutory aggravators, which are themselves subject, some of them are subject to discretion mm -hmm. and perception by DAs, but the biggest thing was what county you're in. One's exposure, of someone convicted of first degree murder, their likelihood of exposure to the death penalty um, depended on where they were in the state. Mm -hmm. um, and that occurs because there aren't, there's not an anchoring set of rules like there are for everything below second degree murder sure. um, and with guidelines. Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk a little bit more about studying these populations mm -hmm. and kind of the intersection between the, the 
sentencing commission and kind of the academic community. Uh, this is really kind of a, a wonderful example, um, an exemplar of what this kind of community, this kind of relationship can be like. Uh, but there are lots of challenges to this population, right? I mean, data collection is complicated, um, especially with incarcerated individuals, uh, who you know those who are exiting the system as well. Um, there's been a lot of work in this space to to uh, create risk assessment tools, and that's kind of perhaps on the on the horizon. Uh, I don't know, Mark, if you want to talk a little bit about that. Well, I, I have hours of that. <laughs> but, uh, so let me start with a couple of things. I think um, data are, are really important. That's like central to all that we do, um, evidence-based practices or data-driven practices, whatever you want to call them. But um, the commission has really been fortunate, I think, from the very start. We've been focused on, on gathering very um, discrete information about uh, individual cases and building up to the offender information. And so we have a, uh, since probably the mid-80s, we have uh, data sets that I think are pretty good data sets in terms of granularity and quality. And that's really helpful in our space at sentencing. And that helps us to look at judges' decision-making and um, to track outcomes. But what's equally important in having good sentencing data is to be able to match it with other parts of the system. And so in Pennsylvania, I think we're really fortunate. We have at the enterprise level um, in the criminal justice system uh, an uh, application called JNet or the Justice Network that allows criminal justice agencies to share information. And it really promotes um, the ability to match cases across systems. So we have the ability with work that we do internally or work that um, the department, Jeff, others does uh, do, that, that we can connect um, our data through some unique identifiers with Department of Corrections, the Parole Board, Pennsylvania State Police for rap sheets, and other criminal justice agencies. Where I think there's probably a weakness is the more inter interdisciplinary areas where we really are interested in like the intersection of criminal justice and, and health and uh, sometimes because of confidentiality and other things like that, or because we have different sets of identifiers, it's sometimes hard to, to do as good a job as possible of connecting all those things and knowing what works and what doesn't. So that's, that's probably a challenging area, but I think like within our own space, we're, I do a lot of work in other states and I see how, how um, sort of blessed we are to have this uh, sort of great quality data and um, interconnectivity um, within the criminal justice system. Um, and uh, if we can build on anything, it would be to have better connections mm -hmm. outside of criminal justice. Yeah, that's fascinating that the, the system that is inherently disjointed perhaps has then more of an effort to combine and integrate their data Absolutely. as a result because a good there's, call. there's yeah. a big piece there. And I know that from some of our work, um, you know, there's been major technical strides in uh, doing some of these linkages across different identifiers, um, but much of the challenge is, is getting the trust in place, the relationships in place, to ensure that that um, everything will be protected and confidentiality will be maintained, ensuring privacy maintained, and ethical use, of course. Um, Jeff, do you have any points on, on kind of studying this population? Yes. Um, well, so we have actually the, um, first of all, the, the research we've done and I've done over the course of my career has only been made possible but because Pennsylvania's Sentencing Commission and the federal system um, with 
sometimes less willingness. <laughs> um, but because they provide, collect and provide data, it astonishes me that that uh, more states don't have sentencing commissions and more states, you know, there are states that don't have a central repository of data that you can analyze to look at that state sentencing mm -hmm. in 2020, um, several states. Um, so from uh, in guideline states like Pennsylvania, uh, Pennsylvania's data and commission are particular that they're national leaders in the data um, collection and dissemination and, and care that they take with the data. Um, but um, post, so once somebody's convicted of a crime, we have excellent data on what happened, what their characteristics are, what their crime of conviction was, what their criminal history was, what sentence they got. And then um, it's not as accessible, but there's, you know, there is good data from the Department of Corrections that it's not obviously as, as public because um, it, it's got privacy kind of information. Um, but researchers can, can uh, um, fulfill certain requirements to get it. Um, and then, then the PCS and JNet, you know, you have the opportunity or avail, ability to kind of trace somebody post-release. What we don't have, um, and this is true nationwide, um, what we don't have is good data or even good ways of getting data prior to that conviction process. So if you want to trace, like, what were the original charges that somebody, that, that a defendant had filed? What were their arrest charges? How did they change? How did the charges change from arrest to charging to conviction? Um, and so you can look at the, the uh, plea bargaining process. Um, pre, uh, you know, bail, pre-sentence detention. Um, you know, we, the, uh, if you want that information, you kind of have to collect it yourself from, depending on the state, from the courts themselves, or in Pennsylvania, we do have the Administrative Office of Pennsylvania Courts, mm -hmm. which has um, docket transcripts online. But if you know the, the case number, you can look it up yourself and code it mm -hmm. yourself, which is what we've done with the, we had to do that with the uh, capital cases. And um, there's just, that's so much, if there's a black box in, criminal justice case processing, that's it. In, in recent years, they have been, um, I think, uh, working on this area that Jeff talked about. We've done some some research where we're able to obtain data sets from them for arrest and do, in effect, an attrition study of all of these charges and how were they disposed of. But it, it is a lot of work and it's it's um, not as, as uh, easy as it should be. And also, you know, the point I think that we both made previously was that even if you have those data from AOPC, there's a lot of individual detailed decision-making happening at the local level that's probably not captured in that. Uh, so you, you still have to do a lot of like primary research mm -hmm. back in the county yeah. to try to figure out uh, what's going on. I did want to mention uh, just one other thing because you raised risk assessment that the Commission spent about 10 years on this and it's very 
you know, very contentious space right now. But um, but in, in looking at risk assessment, one of the um, major areas of pushback was um, the uh, quality of the data and the bias in the data. And, and I think what we found was that's particularly true when you're talking about arrest data, because you're really reflecting law enforcement practices about where you're deploying police and, um, and what kind of arrests are being made and, and what have you. So, so there has been a lot of pushback in terms of what's often labeled as, as tainted data, and especially around arrest data. And so, um, at least for our efforts around risk assessment, we had to move from arrest data to conviction data and then do other work to try to, in effect, neutralize race um, in terms of considering a lot of those kind of factors. Yeah, it's fascinating considering the uh, Democratic debate last night, I think stop and frisk was, mm -hmm. uh, was remarkably uh, high, high in uh, discussion mm -hmm. um, and that has implications down the downstream in the, I mean, this is where this uh, the patchwork quilt of mm -hmm. criminal justice agencies across the, the state in Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. the Commonwealth, uh, but also across the country then, uh, it really creates a lot of variability, which makes studying very challenging. Um, and also, it's interesting to think about how the implications for the study and the, the practition, practicing of sentencing um, has ripple effects across society in different ways. Uh, there's, you know, I think the societally there's a, a um, Rebuttal against the mass incarceration mm -hmm. that is perceived. Um, so it's interesting to think if there are ways to, you know, we've been kind of zoomed in in our discussion on the particularities of sentencing, but how does this work really touch on the larger society, uh, both both in the United States and then I think in international context too, if you have any insights there? Well, I, I guess a couple of things. One is, you know, if you start with the uh, mass incarceration or those kind of concerns, um, you know, a focal point is sentencing. You know, what, what is happening in terms of driving people to uh, incarceration? Now, there's been work, I think, in recent years through justice reinvestment and other things to try to maybe turn the corner on that and, and start to bring it back. I know we at the commission are spending a lot of time looking at our criminal history because if you think about it, whether you're thinking about the use of prior convictions as some kind of measure of culpability or something like that, that's going to drive up sentences. And if you don't have some kind of, um, if you don't revisit that at some point, those criminal histories remain with you for life and they drive up your sentences. Um, and, and if you look at the intersection of that kind of retribution with risk, you know, older people are going to be at much lower risk, but they're going to hold on to that prior record score. And so we have to look at how we adjust that to accommodate um, sort of consideration of risk factors. The, the converse side of that, I guess, is that younger offenders tend to be at higher risk. So it's almost, you know, we're, we're um, you know, the, the deck is a little bit stacked because higher, younger kids with a lower prior record score might have a higher risk factor. And then older people might retain a prior record but be at lower risk. So we're spending a lot of time looking at that whole space and trying to figure out how we can bring some balance to it and sort of right-size things. I think what we have to do as a commission, as a state agency, and also just for better, you know, return on investment is really just think about better outcomes. And, you know, some better outcomes involve the offender. We want 
you know, individuals coming through the system to leave better and stay out of the system. And so we have to focus on how do you do that and what role does sentencing have in that. And then you want to think about public safety because that's sort of job one. So how do you do, how do, you do the right thing with offenders uh, to promote public safety? And they, they can be one and the same, right? If you're, if you're reducing out, um, negative outcomes, you're also promoting public safety. And then that gets to the issue of resources. You know, why, why are we spending money where it's not necessary? And one of the things you'll see, aside from the focus on confinement and incarceration, is the focus on the lower side of people that we place on probation. Pennsylvania has a terrible reputation for having people on probation for very long periods of time with a lot of conditions, and that leads to a lot of failures for technical reasons. And, um, and so we have to right-size that, too. And the, the, the research on risk and needs and responsivity is all about trying to reduce the sort of the footprint of probation. You know, less is more if you have a low risk and low needs person. So reduce the time, reduce the conditions. And we have to we have to get that into the system because, because sometimes probation is seen as the alternative to jail. And therefore, from a retributive point of view, we need long periods and lots of conditions. And that might be exactly the wrong thing to do for low risk, low need cases. You just need to you know, hold them accountable for a short period of time and send them on their way. And um, so we have, to, we have to use sentencing as a mechanism to do the right thing there. So our partnership with research really helps us to think through how do, you, how do you construct that so that you're doing the right thing and promoting the best outcomes. That's great. Do you have any points on, on the larger kind of societal impact? Or? Yes, well, you know, sentencing is, I've always been drawn to it as a sociologically trained scholar um, because it's, it's um, Social control is fundamental to society, rules and deviance and conformity. And then two, sentencing is the biggest fundamental expression of a society's sense of justice. And it's to the extent that it, it uh, is seen as legitimate, that society is seen as legitimate. Um, to the extent that it has problems, um, that it works for some and not others, that's a problem for the whole society. Um, and two, the, another reason it's uh, sentencing is important is, is we try to do so much with sen through sentencing. Um, I've always been kind of skeptical, um, like many of my criminology colleagues, um, skeptical of crime control through sentencing, like as that you can that you can affect how much crime there is in society in a large sense through sentencing people um, to to imprisonment, let's say. But what you can do with sentencing are things like Mark talked about. Um, sentencing is a point of intervention for individuals to address needs that they have that brought them into the system in the first place, that led them into crime in the first place, like drug and alcohol dependence, um, like uh, educational deficits, like, you know, and if you address those things, you will address that person's criminality. If you, if someone is dealing drugs to support their own habit, if you 
address their addiction, you will address their drug dealing. Um, and so sentencing does provide us an opportunity to do those things with individuals. And so I, those are three groups of reasons why it's an, and why I'll probably will always study sentencing. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I, I think that really kind of sums up some of our conversation here. I really appreciate uh, all your time today, both of you. Again, uh, we're, we're joined here today with uh, Dr. Jeff Ulmer, Professor of Sociology and Criminology in the College of Liberal Arts at Penn State, and also Mark Bergstrom, the Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Commission on Sentencing. Thank you both for your time today. I really appreciate Great, it. Great. Thank you. Thank you. And with that, we'll bring this episode to a close. Many thanks to my guests. Again, I'm your host, Michael Donovan, the Director of Policy and Outreach at Penn State's Administrative Data Accelerator and the Associate Director at the Evidence to Impact Collaborative. And this has been another episode of the Evidence to Impact podcast. Thanks for listening.